This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps. listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 44 is something like, uh, should we be religious? We read recent selections from four writers, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and Dan Dennett. Look at partiallyexaminedlife.com for more information. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, proselytizing to the extreme from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, anxiously apprehending the gang of people leaving the prayers in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. All right. So specifically, we're reading in Sam Harris's The End of Faith from 2004, the first two chapters, the last three chapters of Christopher Hitchens' 2007 classic, God is Not Great, primarily chapter four, also some of chapter two from Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, and primarily chapter eight, although you kind of have to read some of the early ones, maybe three and seven from Dan Dennett's Breaking the Spell. The Dawkins and the Dennett are both from 2006. And these are a good example of readings that when we started this podcast, I desperately wanted to avoid. <laughs> because they're barely philosophical. I mean, Dan Dennett is the only actual philosopher of the bunch. That's reflected in his writing style. Well, I guess uh, Sam Harris is getting a dissertation. Harris is getting a doing a PhD in neuroscience. Yep. I thought he had a PhD in neuroscience, but he was getting one in philosophy. No, just, no. All right, so he did some philosophy undergrad. He has a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Bumfuck Community College. <laughs> so he's a success story because he wrote this huge best-selling philosophy book. It says he's a graduate of philosophy from Stanford University. There you go. Based on an undergrad... <laughs> degree. You can do it too. Yes, when I say bumfuck community college, I mean the quality of his reasoning, <laughs> not his actual institution. What exactly are we going to try to answer on this podcast? Folks should be aware, if you've not listened to episode 43, there's where we actually considered the classical arguments for the existence of God. And I really see these readings as more political. Like when I was trying to come up with reading selections in these in the first place, I had my eye out for, do they talk about these classical arguments? What do they have to say about them? But for the most part, even though some of them treat the arguments, they're treated with such brevity. There's not really a serious attempt, I feel, to... Only Dawkins tries to okay. really offer it. I'm sure Hitchens at least brings them up in a sneering way for a second. He does, yeah. In what we read of Hitchens, okay, right. we just get the totalitarianism as a form of religion thing. Yes. We've gotten a request to do these. We feel things that are, I don't know, I don't want to make this a general rule, but one of the things that we're open to covering is anything that is considered philosophy and is having some impact on public discourse currently, it might be nice for us to read if we can stomach it. But I feel like these guys are, for the most part, and I would, I would exclude Dennett from most of what I have to say here, but the other three guys are more concerned with the political, how do we keep atheists from being marginalized? How do we instead marginalize people of faith? 
So there's some actual argumentation about the substance. You know, it's not reasonable to believe in God, but a lot more of it seems to me to be whether it's rebutting the claims of theists that it provides them some advantage, that it provides, whether it be a necessity for peace of mind and meaning in life, or especially, I think, I believe all four of the books deal in some way with the question, are religious people more moral than non-religious people? So it's about rebutting those things, and it's attacking the concept of faith in general, right? Yeah, I think even though these readings aren't the highest quality, I mean, the question is still intrinsically interesting, which is, is it reasonable to believe in God? Is it reasonable to be religious? And their answer, of course, is no, it's not. It's not reasonable even to be agnostic. And there is a lot of good, you know, of course, philosophical work done on that. And one of those is Mackey's book, which we can bring to bear. So let's start with the Harris. Before we get to that, I mean, what were your experiences <laughs> slogging through this stuff? I agree that a lot of it was political in the sense that I guess the way Hitchens' book is titled How Religion Poisons Everything, they're clearly going after a particular brand of religion, which they consider to be either on the rise or too much a part of the political landscape that is not interested in playing well with others. It's not hard to come up with examples of it. <laughs> and they consider it to be a, they don't ever use the word politics, but essentially a serious political problem for civil society. And they try to bring to bear both people who are religious, who don't think this is a good idea, as well as arguments against the kinds of uh, claims that are often made by this particular corner. In general, I found that their arguments are essentially preaching to the choir in the end for the kinds of audience that they have as far as the dangers of extreme fundamentalism or literal readings. But it's the same argument that's been going on about religions, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, Spinoza has the same kinds of arguments, but he goes at it from a different standpoint. He brings to bear the scripture itself and says, well, what we need to do is have a revision of our understanding of biblical interpretation for this. So rather than coming at it from the standpoint of being atheist, which is not going to convince anybody who's a believer to play well with others, the arguments against things like violence and even totalitarianism and stuff like that within religion weren't even going to address those who were partisans of it, right? There's nothing in there that was going to convince somebody who was a Muslim theist in Iran, you know, or theocracy advocate in the United States to abandon those positions and believe in the good of civil society. Well, Harris is addressed in a way, or at least he's attacking them, religious moderates who he thinks are the problem. Yeah. Right. Good liberal religious moderates who say we ought to tolerate. He's making that argument against tolerance. Yeah. He's making an argument about the problems of tolerance, which, I mean, I guess you would sum up as if the other side isn't going to be swayed by it, then your tolerance, all it does is lead to enabling their totalitarianism. But, you know, again, he also isn't providing an argument that's going to persuade the other side about why they ought to participate in civil society. I don't think it's even persuasive to agnostics. I mean, Harris has a few themes. One of them is that these religious beliefs lead to violence. And then the other is that if we had more respect for evidence, we wouldn't have any religious beliefs at all, and we'd be much better off. 
Yeah, I guess in just sort of summing up my reaction before trying to get into it about the specific guys, I was surprised the extent to which they were focusing on pointing out the difficulties and atrocities and so forth within organized religion, which aren't hard to point to. And they were relatively unsophisticated about analyzing the theme of totalitarianism and the relationship between Mm -hmm. politics and religion. But they also did not try to make an argument for the benefit of civil society, period, which is sort of a classic argument regarding religion, even qualifying the tolerance issue and saying along the lines of Harris and wanting to say, well, look, you know, there's limits to our tolerance. None of them go sort of the liberal democracy route of saying that what really has to happen is a kind of trumping of religious sentiment in the goal of civil society that enables the genuine freedom of religious activity. So from the standpoint of a hardcore theist or theocracy advocate, they would immediately recognize that that's just a simple neutering of a deist argument for its primacy in political life, which it is. But that's sort of what gets embraced in liberal democracy. None of them make that sort of Spinoza-style argument. I read the end of the Dennett book, which is why I think most of these introductory things we're saying don't really apply to him, that he does ultimately, I think, come down on the side of these things have to be able to compete in sort of the marketplace of ideas. And that is not necessarily all cashed out in some strict scientific verificationist kind of everything has to be testable. But certainly if it comes to things that spark religion and that close your mind to other things, then that's the only thing that we really need to watch out for, which is in some ways the same point that the others are making, that faith itself, right? If faith is something that I will hold fast to this idea and I will not be open to discussion, that that is the decay. That is the end of deliberation. That's the end of something that a liberal democracy requires. Yeah, but you don't really care about that in terms of liberal democracy unless it's true of everybody, right? What you care in liberal democracy is whether people buy into the idea that they need to follow the rules basically with respect to everybody else, even if they don't get their way. And that's the big deal, right? That you're not going to go and bomb a federal building or something like that just because you didn't get your way in an election. But you're allowed to believe whatever crazy thing you want to believe. Right. Religious or not. Yes. Religious or not. Exactly. But none of them make that kind of argument because, you know, the fact is, to me, this is what I mean by preaching to the converted, is that for someone who is basically a scientific rationalist, Everything they say, all of them already believe. I I can't imagine it. Any of it would be convincing to somebody who was a fundamentalist, you know, Christian, Mormon. Most of it I don't think is even accurate. I mean, the characterizations of why people commit violence, for instance, by Harris, this idea that religious beliefs are the prime movers, I don't think is true. So, for instance, if you have a population of over a billion Muslims, you're supposed to be a scientist and you're making the claim that religion causes violence, then you'd have to explain why the percentage of people who commit violence in the name of religion is so minuscule. It's not something he tries to explain. Yeah, but part of the problem there is simply that the border between religion and politics gets smeared out in this. And so it becomes almost impossible. When you have a religious disposition, that means you ought to rule then it becomes impossible to separate whether you're talking politics or talking religion. And also, it's very hard to separate personal motivations. I mean, another one of Harris's points is that why would someone who has no obvious psychological dysfunction or, you know, you don't need obvious psychological dysfunction for someone to be 
personally motivated, say, the way Mohammed Atta was. You know, he's the leader of the 9-11 attacks. If you've seen any biographies of him, you see certain personal patterns, which you see in a lot of the sorts of hopeless people who go and blow up other people. So there's a convergence of personal grievances, personal bitterness that gets tied into one's political grievances, and then religion can give you a sort of added license to push you over the edge. It's, that's true, but to simplify it to, to saying that religion is the cause of these violent behaviors and nothing else is ridiculous, including, so for instance, Harris dismisses colonialism, which if there's any obvious reason why many Muslims are upset, it's because they're thinking about if the United States were occupied and bombed and all sorts of those things. You don't think people would be committing political violence? And you don't think religion would be amped up and used for that political violence? I mean, it's absurd to say that colonialism isn't the cause. Well, I would take Harris's argument as being in the way in which religion would leverage a certain kind of call to authority as making it more persuasive than the kind of buy-in that you would have either in traditional liberal democracy or a kind of rational argument, is that you immediately, if you have people convinced or you have a group of people who are willing to cede authority to people who say they speak to God or have authority in that way, then the kinds of justifications you need are no longer reasonable. Those ideologies get amped up in certain situations. So for instance, German totalitarianism, Germans had been humiliated. They were in a very humiliating position. And after the Versailles Treaty, having to pay reparations and their economy was in shambles, there are lots of obvious reasons why some sort of totalitarian ideology that restored national pride would be appealing to Germans. So political groups commit violence and for similar reasons, I think, to individuals, which is questions of identity and pride and in-group, out-group, paranoid fears of annihilation by some other scapegoating as with the Jews in Germany. And then whether or not you get some sort of totalitarian ideology or some sort of religious ideology attached to that to enable it, well, that's a question and that sort of thing happens. But the ideology is not the prime mover there. There are more fundamental motivators to violence that will use whatever fuel they can, religious or otherwise, to do their work. I reiterate my question. What exactly <laughs> is the topic for this uh, particular gathering tonight? Because you guys have already kind of started into arguments from specific guys. And as Dylan pointed out, the issues they're addressing are not new. It's not like there's never been religious violence before. It's not like there hasn't been persecution, etc., etc. So why at this point in time, in this day and age, in the last, let's call it, mm, decade, do you suppose that there's this movement that these four relatively smart and articulate guys and others like them have decided that they need to speak out and write books about how religion and belief in God is a bad thing. What do you suppose the event was that spawned that? <laughs> Seth, yeah, that's a leading question, are you? <laughs> yeah, no, explicitly, Sam Harris is, is a 9-11 thing, and that's why it has sold so well and why it captured a certain part of the public imagination, why it could be a success story for this not overly qualified academic at the time and very passionately written 
and displays a good deal of hysterical anti-Muslim sentiment. They're just hysteria in general. I mean, it's just like the worst sort of rhetorical garbage that you can put <laughs> on paper. Well, don't Hitchens and Harris's books fall sort of in that category, both explicitly being sort of responses to 9-11? And then both Dennett and Dawkins, they have that both in time period and that sense, but they also clearly are part of fighting this fight in America against creationism and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think the culture war is a big yeah. factor in the, yeah. the, the fear for, of for those two in particular. the right wing, the yeah. legitimate fear. Of yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's kind of the point. I, the leading <laughs> question that I asked is that the response to 9-11 from those of us who were in the, let's call it the moderate rational camp, right? <laughs> Regardless of what our, whether or not we were theists or it was easy for Christians to identify the enemy, so to speak, as Islam and for this counter rhetoric and political movement to develop. So the rise of the Christian or fundamentalist right in the United States makes sense as a reaction to the rise of this fundamentalist faction in Islam. And to me, the culture war is kind of an offshoot of that. The challenge was for those of us who deplore what happened, but recognize, as Wes pointed out, that the vast majority of Muslims actually live in Southeast Asia and weren't involved in this. And this is very much a political colonial thing and has to do with money and lots of other things revolving around the Middle East. How do we respond to that? And as the environment became more and more polarized, it seems to me that somebody felt the need to speak up out of the middle and simultaneously condemn one side without aligning themselves with the other side. That seems to me to be kind of the motivation or the environment that was created, why you have all of this happening when it happens now. And these are different flavors of how to address that. Some, I suppose, more rhetorically entertaining than others, and some more rigorous in thought and scholarship than others. Well, I think Dawkins, I'm not sure how, to the extent to which Dawkins is motivated by the Muslim question. He seems to be more concerned about the science versus faith culture war and the possibility of creationism being taught in schools and that sort of thing. Right. You can see Harris's book is being directly response to 9-11, but the other ones potentially being, oh, now there's this bandwagon. And Dawkins and Dennett, and I don't know about Hitchens so much, they're going to be publishing books regularly anyway. And so <laughs> this is at the top of their minds. Hitchens took a huge turn after... Hitchens was always very left-wing and Marxist. And after 9-11, at least on questions of foreign policy, took this very right-wing turn. Who was the comedian that did that? Dennis Miller. Yeah, Dennis Miller. He like freaked out or something like that after... Completely lost his mind. <laughs> Career suicide, yes. I don't know. I think he has a talk show on some basic cable station. He's talking about, yeah, he's on the Fox Comedy Network. Yeah. <laughs> he's got like one show with Dennis Miller. <laughs> But he has—he does seem to have lost his ability to uh, make references the way he used to. Yeah, he was great. You know, so political works, I wouldn't characterize this exactly as preaching to the choir, because I think it's preaching to people who don't really like religion, don't buy it, but maybe don't think about it that much, and trying to get them energized, trying to make them into the choir. So I remember this making the rounds. The first I heard of this was around the Casey family, my in-laws. <laughs> 
a few of them had read it. And then actually I had gotten it for my dad at one point before I had read much of it. And just reading the first chapter or so myself at the time, this is five years ago or whenever, there was something liberating about it that finally somebody is just saying, wow, this is just totally full of shit. Maybe I thought about that. But I was just kind of too nice to, I don't like conflict. I don't like to dwell on such things. But, uh, you know, maybe it's time to stand up and do something. I, you know, that's the feeling at least. <laughs> Atheists unite. Yeah. And there's the obvious political, I don't remember what the figure is, but that atheist is less likely to be elected to a public office higher than uh, a homosexual of any stripe of any minority group. There's a public relations problem. And if you're just humming along and think, you know, why should you have to hide what you believe if you're running for office? It's less likely that your policies would be affected by your atheism than, say, your belief, if a politician might have this, that God is telling them directly what to do. You have to say uh, lots of stupid things to get elected <laughs> to office, not just religious. I mean, is, is there anything that you can say that's not stupid in a debate? I mean, all sorts of patriotic bromides and... You can merely be silent and polite on some things if you're <laughs> taking I mean, the you, You're going to sound like Ron Paul. Yeah, the, the exception is Ron Paul. And you see where that gets him. I mean, when someone actually speaks their mind and says what they believe. And... I think Rick Perry's speaking his mind. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well... These <laughs> fragment of mind. <laughs> there all right, speak. no, no. <laughs> Calm down, audience. <laughs> We're giving an objective intellectual assessment of these no, readings not. and the political issues involved. Look, I'm willing to defend <laughs> religion tonight because I think none of these arguments work. I think they're garbage, but give me a few little political sideswipes. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say one of the things that came to mind when I was reading Harris's book that wasn't exactly about religion, but maybe sort of, I guess, a question of philosophy and psychology and he has this long section, basically a kind of catalog of the Spanish Inquisition. And, you know, I'd read stuff like this before, and I just was, I got kind of sick to my stomach just thinking about it. And after I got over feeling sick to my stomach, I was left with wondering a lot about putting religion aside. There's something in the capability of human beings regarding the capability of cruelty, both in terms of totalitarianism and the need to inflict authority on others, as well as the need to inflict violence on others, and very, very personal violence. I mean, not necessarily you know, international violence, but just seeing other people suffer, whether it be public executions or whether it be individual torture events, and putting aside whatever motivations there are, the fact is, is that that is a capability and a possibility within human beings that comes out in all sorts of circumstances. And even if you don't consider it normative, if you consider it aberrant in some ways, the mere fact is, is that it's possible. And I find it, uh, I don't know if astounding, but yeah. I found myself distracted by the mere fact of possibility of the pleasure that other human beings have in both the subjugation of each other as well as the infliction of harm. And part of this was that I, I know it myself. Look, you know, I like winning <laughs> and I enjoy being in a competition and I have certainly felt the desire to beat somebody. And I mean that in the sense of being victorious over them and have them be incapable of not submitting to my will by force. 
I've pinned people in wrestling, right? And they couldn't get up. And I also know just from raising kids, the need to have them obey what you say and how easily that slips into the need to have them think what you want them to think, have the right kind of attitude. And all of those are seeds to me of the need to say, you need to think the way is the right way to think. I'm not saying that it's necessarily perverted, but the seeds of it that I have in my own experience, I can see a straight line to the way it can get perverted. And I just found myself wondering about how is that connected to the rest of our intellect and consciousness that that possibility exists in our mental activity? Well, I think we already established in the feminine discussion that that's just because you're, you're a parent. It's too much testosterone. Dude, you beat me to the punch. I was going to say, well, it's clear you didn't grow up in her land. <laughs> but Dylan raises a very important point that I think we have to address here, right? So I think it's pretty safe to say that none of these works are pointing themselves at Buddhism, or Hindu, a little maybe a Hinduism, I don't know, but not Confucianism. Hitchens has a chapter, There Is No Eastern Solution, where he pretty yeah. much rips on all those guys as frauds. But Also, yeah, Buddhist monks, yeah, can engage in violence. There are riots and all sorts of shit that goes right, down but, when Buddhist monks go crazy. But they're clearly, for the most part, targeted at the three major monotheistic religions of the West. And part of the reason why that's the case is that whether it's in the texts or not, all three of those religions have within them the thread that permits some kind of interpretation where some fundamentalist faction decides that the truth of that religion needs to be imposed upon others. In the case of Christianity, right, it's conversion. In the case of Islam, it's obeying Islamic law. And in the case of Judaism, it has to do with the imposition of some sort of political will on an offending minority. So the monotheistic Western religions have within them this absolutist ideology that brings out, as Wes said, these characteristics and amplifies them, as Dylan pointed out, and that it's this thing which drives all of the behaviors that are motivating this need to speak yeah, out. I think that you could say it about any group ideology, and this brings us back actually to Rousseau and Hegel. I mean, there are deep-seated psychological needs to have other people share your values because our, let's say, psychical existence isn't just predicated upon physiological needs. It's predicated upon what Hegel might call the recognition from the other. And I think Rousseau says something pretty close. It's when we reach the type of self-consciousness, which sort of takes as its food a certain type of recognition from others, that we begin demanding that recognition and responding violently when we don't get it. And a deviation in someone's values from your own is a threatening withdrawal of recognition. And so you get that Hegelian life-death struggle. And we could go on at length about all the, the, those sorts of reasons that groupthink is demanded. But I don't think religion, you know, religion, of course, is the most significant form of that. I don't think it's the only manifestation of that deeper psychological reason. It seems like you're arguing in general against the power of ideas. And it's a very Freudian, perhaps cynical kind of theory of human behavior that we have an innate aggressiveness and it needs to be channeled in certain ways. And here's religion. That's one of the ways it can be done. And it's going to happen sort of whatever your culture is and whatever your religion is. And it's going to adapt 
first of all, it seems to deny the obvious power in history, I think, that ideas have had, right? And it could be the idea of socialism. It could be the idea of liberty. Yes, people flock to these things and fight wars over them because they have the capacity for being violent in the first place. Yes, of course. But whether that's going to go off at a given time, I mean, you can't just look at all of history and say there was sort of a, oh, there was a pretty steady level of violence through all of it. Like, no, there really was, say, the disagreements between Protestantism and Catholicism that had the Thirty Years' War and the Hundred Years' War. There were some big things that were centered around ideas. And whereas, you know, maybe in a place where the ideas don't give rise to that kind of thing, where the ideology is more neutered, then you're going to get individuals having fights and things, but they're not going to all join together in a massive all-out war. I think that that, that would be plausible if most wars were religious and if most religious wars are religious. Again, I'm not, I'm not even saying religion yet. I just mean ideological. So, for instance, during the Crusades, Christian armies went off and plundered Christian cities. Were they behaving based on their religious ideology primarily there? I mean, those questions become very complex. But I agree. You're right. I'm not denying the power of ideas. But I think um, those social constructions are predicated upon basic facts about the human psyche. And the I think we can say the prevalence of violence through human history in all its various forms, religious and otherwise, political and otherwise, provides us with plenty of evidence that religion isn't unique in its status for being a reason for violence. See, I just, I don't impose that reading that it is unique onto Harris. Harris explicitly makes that in the first two chapters of his books. He explicitly says that if you took away religion and people behaved solely based on evidence, all of these ills would go away. That's his explicit argument. Okay, then let's make it better if that's what he says. Let's talk about the theory here that if there are beliefs that you hold not based on evidence, and I'm talking about not abstract beliefs that we were discussing in our last episode on whether the ultimate ground of being is a personality list. Some of the even theological things are not going to have these immediate political ramifications. But if you believe that anybody that does not share my belief, my scripture commands me to kill them, or they are not included in my moral community, so it's okay for me to kill them. Would you not think that people's behavior might not be affected by that? Yeah, but those sorts of reasons arise in any, the in-group, out-group thing will seize upon any number of reasons. It could be family, it could be tribal, it could be national. People in the United States, you can be guaranteed that if you make a joke about the French, people will immediately understand there's an underlying hostility for the French. Why? Who knows? But they are other. They are other in a, in a we certain don't kind of way that makes them... Yeah, but Wes, I think you're discounting or at least minimizing too much the possibility of seeding the authority that is explicitly part of many religions regarding these kinds of decisions. You know, if we tried to do what Marx says and tried to see what the seed of Harris's argument is that has some more force, it would have to do with the way religion has the possibility intrinsically, or he would be making the argument, that monotheistic religion in particular and the way Judaism and Islam and Christianity are, have in their structure a disposition with respect to authority that allows for them to be perverted in a way that rational scientific discourse doesn't. I don't agree. Even the concept of democracy, right, is used routinely to justify violence. Right? He went over to Iraq to help people out with some democracy. It cost maybe a million or more lives, but we were trying to help them out with democracy. 
Yeah. I think democracy was actually written on the bombs. That it was- <laughs> Thanks for listening to this Partially Examined Life episode preview. If you're enjoying it so far, you can purchase the full episode in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.